0: And now it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. Hello, everybody. I'm Robert Polly, And today on the show, Natural Born Liars, a conversation about deception and especially self-deception with the evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers. And to introduce the subject... I wanna go to a timeless source of wisdom, this old record for training salesmen that I found. How to sell the prospect by selling yourself. That is the name of the album, and here's some of the wisdom.
1: When any negative thought or feeling creeps into your consciousness, say bluff to yourself. Say it over and over and use it as your national slogan. When you work untiringly at bluffing yourself out of everything negative and defective, You suddenly wake up being sold on yourself. Now you've mastered
0: the first step in becoming that fascinating type of salesman who sells by selling himself. In other words, if you really want to convince somebody of something, you really want to be persuasive, start by persuading yourself. And if it's BS that you're peddling, it's going to be easier to do so if you believe your own line of bullshit. And that doesn't just apply to salesmen it may hold true for nature in general, according to a new book by Robert Trivers. It's called The Folly of Fools, The Logic of Deceit and Self-Deception in Human Life. Robert Trivers is considered one of the most influential evolutionary thinkers of the last 50 years, and he's particularly famous for work exploring genetic conflicts at play in relationships, by which I mean sibling relationships, relationships between parents and children, between males and females between acquaintances, and even relationships among different parts of the same individual, that is, relationships with ourselves. Underneath all those interactions, Trivers says, are a bunch of competing interests, all the way down to the genes. And where you have competition, you're going to have a lot of fakery and fraud.
1: B-L-U-F-F
0: That is what I mean. Robert Trivers has been pondering these subjects for about four decades now. And he sums up a lot of his thoughts in his new book. It is packed with examples from animals and people, from everyday life, from history and politics, and it offers some explanations as to why natural selection could have made us such proficient liars. Now, before I go too much further, I do not want you to get the idea that Robert Trivers says it's okay that we lie, that we have to lie, or that biology is any excuse for all of our bad behavior. Instead, he says we do have a choice in the matter, and we can choose truth. Robert is currently a professor of anthropology and biological sciences at Rutgers University. He formerly taught at UC Santa Cruz and at Harvard. So let's get on with the interview, my conversation with evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers. Well, Robert, thanks for uh, joining us today. Yes, my pleasure. You know, initially uh, I wanted to do this interview in person, but our schedules didn't really work out. But after reading your book... I'm kind of glad we're doing it by phone, because now I realize um, that if I had spoken to you in person, I might not leave with all of my belongings.
1: (laughs) Yes, Uh, but uh, I only steal from you when you're there. I have to say that in my self-defense.
0: You reveal in your book that you have this interesting habit of swiping like small items from people when you're talking to them.
1: Yes. Uh, I call myself an unconscious petty thief, and it's been with me for a long, long time, at least since I was 20 and probably since childhood. So the two items typically are a pen or a pencil, or if I'm in a smoking mode, lighters or matches. And by the way, I've got to give a shout-out to everybody in Santa Cruz in the area. I taught at UC Santa Cruz for 16 years. And I remember one day I was lecturing in front of 80 students, and I couldn't find the chalk, and then uh, there was no chalk in the room, so I sent a student running down the hall for the chalk. That night when I'm downloading everything from my pants, there's a piece of chalk stuck in my back pocket. So it's an interesting feature of this unconscious habit that I'm even stealing chalk from myself while lecturing, And I once then offered a prize, in fact, I think it might have been that class, to anybody that saw me taking a piece of chalk while I was doing it. Because, you know, throughout the semester, I'd I'd end up with four or five pieces of chalk at home. So late in the course, one day this girl shoots up her hand and she says, you just took a piece of chalk. She sat in the third row. And she was right. I gave her $20 right in front of everyone. And for all I know, that was the only thing she learned the entire time. For all I know, (laughs) her eyes were riveted on me. (laughs) And not surprising, it was a woman.
0: What do you mean, not surprising, it was a woman?
1: Well, I do think women, and there's a good bit of evidence for this, are more socially conscious, aware, and more attuned to what's going on around them, and we are relatively less conscious. I had thought when I started work on this project that there would be a literature, hopefully a rich one, on... Uh, women uh, seeing through self-deception more quickly or whatnot. There is no such literature. Or spotting deception better. There is no such literature. But we do know that, for example, with one exception, women read emotions quicker. If you flash faces for just a half a second or something like that, women will get the correct facial expression uh, more often than a man. The only thing we're better at women... in that domain is spotting an angry face in a crowd. And when you stop and think about it, that would be something that a male might be expected to be more attuned to. You know what I mean? I.e. the possibility of an aggressive Uh, problem.
0: Well, it absolutely uh, fits the stereotype of of male versus female. Um, The reason I brought up your sneak thief habit, the the habit you have of like purloining small items like pens when you talk to people, is because you give it as an example in your book of how we can do things uh, unbeknownst to ourselves, things that we we should be seeing. Um, How is it that you weren't aware of that until, (laughs) I don't know, when did you become aware of it?
1: Oh, I became aware of the habit a long time ago, but it is a problem in self-deception that we can become aware of the fact that we have this little unconscious theft module working, and yet be unable to change
0: it. This book, in fact, um, though uh, there's a lot of biology in here, there is some morality in here as well near the end, and we'll get to that, where you talk about the seeming uh stubbornness of our habits and our blind spots and all of that. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Well let's definitely talk about that. But first, um the title, the Folly of Fools. Um what is the folly and who are the fools? <laughs>
1: yeah, you'd almost better ask the publisher who who ran through a number of titles before I finally caved in and said, All right, I'll accept that one. Oh, uh, okay, okay. There is a quote in Proverbs that says something like the wise man will pay attention to the truth, but the folly of fools is deception. Uh-huh. Uh huh. If I had my pocket Bible within sight, I'd find it. I think it might be Proverbs twelve eight, but that was the that was what their justification was for that title.
0: You do know your scripture.
1: Yeah, I learned it from my mother when I was uh, young in the 50s, you know, before television and all that kind of stuff. The only book I read seriously till I was 13 and learned mathematics was um, the Bible, you know.
0: Interesting. The, poor,
1: the yeah. four Gospels and a few other books.
0: Religion comes up in your new book um, as yes. an example of self-deception in many ways. Yes. As do many, many other human activities, but also uh, a lot of things in nature with, with animals as well. Um Let's talk about humans first and this um, huge literature that shows just how little we seem to know ourselves. Yes. Give me some of your favorite examples.
1: Well, we have a series of biased mental processes that social psychologists have teased apart, and we're often unaware that we're participating in them when we do it. For example we have the illusion that our memory is like a picture that was taken, and with time it kind of fades, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's not the way memory actually works. Memory is reconstructive after the fact, and malleable after the fact, so it's not that the picture gradually fades with time and we have a less precise image. No, the thing can be transformed through interactions with others, and this is a common problem with uh, police work. If you see an accident and they ask you, what about the red car that was parked there on that corner? Well, there was no such red car, but when they come back and question you two weeks later, you'll start describing the red car and six weeks later it'll be one of the things you're most sure of in your memory but the thing was entirely introduced uh... way after the event itself you know so we have biased memories, which are then very hard for us to notice because, you know, we think, ah, oh, well, our memories are veridical, uh, not as accurate as if it had been closer, but still accurate, not systematically biased, but that's not true. They're systematically biased.
0: Um, there are some other experiments you list in your book that are pretty eye-opening as well. Um, some of them are, are classics uh, where people are tested on their ability to recognize things that they should should instantly recognize like their own voices, yes, can you describe that one
1: yes well this was this is the classic experiment on self deception and for many years it was about the only one we had, and that is uh because we do have a measure of unconscious self recognition that is um, when people hear the human voice, they show uh, uh Uh, physiological arousal, and that's measured by a jump in the galvanic skin response, one of the three things that's used in lie detector tests. It really is just measuring moisture across the palm of your skin, which increases electrical conductance. But in any case, never mind that. The point is, there's a jump in your GSR when you hear another human voice, but there's twice as big a jump if it's your own voice, for example, coming from a tape recorder. Now, we're unconscious of what's happening on the palm of our hands. So you can play a game in which you listen to a master tape in which your real voice is embedded along with the real voice of a bunch of other people with the pauses, and your voice has been chopped up into two, four, six, twelve second segments, and similarly with the other people, all reading the same boring paragraph from a book. Now they hook you up to the galvanic skin response. Uh, machine, and they tell you to press this button whenever you recognize your own voice. And meanwhile, they measure your galvanic skin response. So, all right, some people make no errors. So they're uninteresting for our purposes. But some people deny their own voice and say that's not them talking, that's someone else, when really it is is them talking. But when you check their skin, the skin has it right. The skin is jumping twice as high as it would to uh, someone else's voice. And, by the way, when you interview those people afterwards, all but one denied ever making any mistakes. By contrast, some people hear themselves talking when they're not. They press a button and say that's them, but really it isn't. Once again, the skin has it right. It shows the low level of arousal appropriate to someone else. Now, those people interviewed after the fact, about half of them are conscious that they were sometimes claiming uh, they were speaking when they weren't. And this, by the way, is an important and, I think, defining partly defining characteristic of denial versus projection, that is, trying to exterminate a piece of reality versus trying to create one. Deniers deny quickly uh, there that 's the only category of lie in which you do it quicker is when you 're denying something and then you tend to deny the denial uh, creating reality is a more relaxed process but finally, just to end the experiment, the beauty of the experiment was that they showed that they could control a person's tendency to deny or project by the simple mechanism of making them feel good or bad about themselves. And psychologists have a lot of tricks. And since they were using college students, they just gave them a little exam and uh, then assigned grades at random. And so if you got a lousy grade, you felt poorly about yourself for a little while. If you got a good grade, you felt good. Okay? Now, they already knew that if you feel good about yourself, you're more apt to look in a mirror on the way out. If you feel bad about yourself, you take one look at the mirror and keep walking. So... They then showed that if you're made to feel good about yourself, you start hearing yourself talking when you're not. And if you're made to feel bad about yourself, you start denying your own voice some of the time. Now, we did not evolve listening to tape recordings, but the point about this is that our, metaphorically our self-presentation is shrinking under failure. You know, it's as if we're shrinking down and, and and presenting less of ourselves. So we're denying some of our own voice. With success, we're expanding outwards, you know. And we have other evidence much more recently that, indeed, we do tend to respond to success with more self-inflation, for example.
0: So our subconscious seems to know uh, things that our conscious itself can't recognize. That is a theme running through the entire book, uh, in fact, that is is part of your definition of self-deception, that, Absolutely. that indeed, part of you knows the truth, and another part of you fails to see it or willfully uh, distorts it.
1: Yes, I'll just make one slight correction there, Robert. Sure. Uh, that's the way I used to think about it until a couple of years ago, when a social psychologist friend of mine convinced me that there are also cases where we don't even have the truth in us. Mm. Uh, and... You know, a trivial example would be biased information intake. So let's say you smoke weed, but you don't smoke tobacco. So there's another article on the dangers of smoking cigarettes. Well, you already know that. That's been established for 40 years. You pay no attention to it. Now you have either an article that says that, uh, like a recent one, that even after 10 years of daily smoking of marijuana, people still have no deficit in lung function, all right? So now if you're a smoker, you read that thing all the way through. But if you see an article that says, you know, marijuana causes testicular cancer, you may just skip it. <laughs> <laughs> so then the only thing that would be left in you is a memory of skipping it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the information would never go in there. So you have a, we have a system of acquiring and storing information which is biased, And so there are cases, and I I probably should and could, with thought, give you a better example, where there's no truth even stored in us. Our brain has managed to just generate the falsehood and the false uh, supposition backing up our behavior without storing the truth.
0: But as in the other case, where we willfully block out things that are available to us in our subconscious, you're talking about willfully blocking out stuff that's available in the environment to us. Yes, um, very, indeed. very different from, say, an honest mistake. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so here we've got this capacity that we seem to, um, fall prey to or, or exercise all over the place. And, and we don't have time in this interview to, to recount, um, the dozens and dozens of examples you give. But, um, let's get to, to the evolutionary interpretation. Of course, you're an evolutionary biologist. You right. think this has a function and that it is selected for, uh, by natural selection.
1: Okay, and my supposition, and I've had it for some 40 years, but it's only now that i finally tried to develop a whole coherent science on it, is that the major reason we practice self-deception is the better to fool others. So if you are uh, unconscious that you're practicing deception, then you will not give off the signals that consciously promulgated deception gives off. For example, we know that if if I'm lying to you about something you care about, Robert, and better yet, you know me and, and are paying attention to me, when I get to the key word, uh, I will naturally tend to tighten up my body uh, because I'm a little bit anxious and nervous. This is the key one. I got to slip by you, you know, mm-hmm. but tensing your body, almost always results in at least a slight rise in the pitch of your voice, and that's kind of inevitable. I could sit and and meditate, all right, Robert, you're coming to the key word, just relax your (laughs) diaphragm and so on, but that would be an awful lot of mental work. So instead, our voice goes up. Well, once again, if we're unconscious of the deception, that ain't going to happen. that cue will be unavailable to you.
0: Um, What I'm about to say, I think, is uh, based on a naive idea of evolution that many people have, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it anyway. If you're going to design an organism to be good at deception, why even create an organism that's likely to have an inner conflict? Why not just create one that never thinks twice about these things, that just, uh, you know, is is programmed to lie without any conflict at all?
1: Because... uh... I guess the answer we would tend to give is that there's a co-evolutionary struggle going on, and that's what people tend to forget when they push one side of the argument too hard. Yes, selection is acting to improve your ability to deceive me, but it's improving my ability to spot your deception at the Mm -hmm. same Mm -hmm. speed, Mm -hmm. because every benefit to you is coupled with a cost to me, and the cost amounts to a selection pressure to improve my ability to spot your deception. So this notion that, well, why don't we just have a perfect creature that lies all the time and feels no conflict, that ain't going to be a creature that is going to be impervious to being spotted, Uh, not when you've got a co-evolving series of of organisms that are looking for any, you know, kind of screw-up. And in addition, the organism you're describing may... End up hopelessly out of touch with reality, well uh, that is true of self deception more particularly
0: well reading reading about uh, you know evolutionary theory applied to this level of human behavior right um, and now i 'm going to discard the naivety that I took on for that last question right One gets a sense of of course evolution building up a whole series of components and faculties and modules that sometimes are in conflict, and they're traded off and balanced against each other in a way that creates a very complicated being psychologically. Evolution doesn't start from scratch and say, I'm going to make the perfect uh, machine for accomplishing X or Y or Z. In fact, it's this long process of adding and tinkering and uh, co-opting and and, and lots of other things that produce these multidimensional capabilities. Is that right? Well, that's
1: very well put, and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and people that uh, overemphasize modularity sometimes and act as if we can have independent modules solving a whole series of independent problems and they don't realize that they're all in a single organism and it has to have a hierarchy to choose, you know, which which module to pay attention to when, you know, it has to have a hierarchy where it values certain things more heavily than others and so forth and so on. And that can can create conflicts of various sorts, independent of conflicts with other organisms, which, however, are also an important part of our psyche, you know.
0: You're famous for work um, that analyzes various kinds of trade-offs in fitness uh, yes. in nature, and, you know, actually analyzes them mathematically to show how, um, you know, under varying circumstances, varying, various kinds of conflicts and competitions and ad- adaptations take place. So in one circumstance, it might be good to have a lot of some kind of faculty, but in another, it might be advantageous to have less. I was interested in one of the the examples from um, the animal world that you give, the, the brood parasites, that is... Um, yes. Animals that fake their way into the nest of other animals, the most famous uh, ones being uh, birds like cowbirds and cuckoos who right. kind of sneak their eggs into other birds of other species' nests and have the, uh, the poor victim take on the role of raising their chicks. Yes. Uh, but one would think okay, so the victim here should evolve a capacity to recognize these cowbird or cuckoo eggs or, or young and kick them out of the nest. But they don't necessarily evolve a lot of that capability for a reason that you cite. You could explain it to us.
1: Well, for the egg recognition, Robert, they do tend to evolve the ability to spot eggs uh, that are different, uh, depending on the, on the rate of parasitism on them, and to eject them. But the bizarre thing is that if, if the youngster hatches, uh, first of all, the cowbird or cuckoo is set up usually to hatch a day or two before the brood in which it's been laid. And this is because, by the way, development starts already in the mother. So the mother cuckoo has been fertilized. The egg starts to develop so that when she gets the chance to lay it, it'll be relatively more advanced. The benefit of hatching a day or two before your your foster sibs, so to speak, is one benefit is you can eject them. So a whole bunch of these species have evolved to lift the eggs they find in the nest on their back and toss them over, overboard, okay?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That may be about the only behavior they can do. Now, now you end up with an offspring that's like six times the size of the parent who's feeding it. I have a picture I show in class where the wren is sitting on the shoulder of its supposed chick, a cowbird chick, who's six times the size.
0: So the imposter is obvious in this case, or should be.
1: Right. Now, there are two components where they do mimic. When they open the gape of their mouth, that coloration looks like the coloration of the wren's uh, gape. And secondly... The single cowbird will make a sound that mimics not one wren, but a whole nest full of wrens, because it needs to consume as much food as would get fed to a whole nest of wrens, all right? But the question is, how in God's name is the wren unable to say, hey, this cannot possibly be my offspring, let me just abandon it? And there are a couple of answers Tentative, because we don't, you know, nobody's done the experiments to to prove it one way or another. But one fascinating possibility, which has been backed up now with uh, three independent studies, I think, is that there are so-called mafia mafia cowbirds. Now, what does a mafia cowbird does? If you destroy its chick or throw its chick out. This can sometimes happen in the egg stage, it'll go destroy the rest of your nest. So it sits around and guards you, and like occasionally raising its check is like a mafia tax. You know, you've got to pay your 30%. Oh, uh,
0: protection racket.
1: Exactly. Otherwise, you know the classic mafia line either your signature or your brains are going to be on this piece of paper. So pretty easy decision as you turn over your business to the mafia. So this is sort of the same way. Oh, you want to kill off my chick? Well, in that case, your next two attempts to breed, I'm going to kill them off right away. You know?
0: Right, right. So now, now so that's speculative, but even better understood is something you said a, a moment before, which is that the ability to recognize and chuck out the interloper's eggs yes. itself depends on the rate of parasitism, because there is a trade-off there. If you get too picky and start throwing out eggs that look a little different from your own, you might start throwing out your own eggs. Uh, So you really don't want to adopt that strategy unless there's a lot of threat from the uh, parasite bird. And if there isn't, you get less discriminatory. If there is, you get more discriminatory. And you guys can map this in actual studies uh, mathematically. and And it pans out, right?
1: You're absolutely right, and I don't want to uh, to use a favorite phrase of Huey Newton's. I don't want to try to blow any smoke up your behind. But you're <laughs> either very well read on cuckoos, or you read that section of my book very carefully, because it's a very it's not such a subtle point. But you know when you state it well, as you just did, but it's critical, and it's it's very good. It's called false positives, you know, where you throw some of your own chicks out because you're too damn discriminating.
0: Well, Robert, I only want to disagree with you on one point, and that is, I don't imagine Huey Newton used the word behind.
1: (laughs) You got that right. (laughs) Uh, um,
0: I want to get to your relationship to Huey Newton because um, he is the person you dedicate this book to, and as I understand it, Huey Newton um, had a role in your um, very long study of self-deception.
1: Indeed he did. Indeed he did. We were going to do a book together on it, and I produced 40,000 words way back in 1981, but the publisher collapsed, and the new publisher that bought it up was not interested in um, continuing uh, with the book. Uh, But Huey Huey was a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz when I was teaching there, and the first course he took from me was on deceit and self-deception, and it soon became obvious that on three of the four subtopics, he was a teacher and I was a student, so he was a master at propagating deception, and he was a master at detecting deception, he was a master at beating your self-deception out of you, and then he was fell down like all the rest of us when it came to his own self-deception.
0: Um, I, I think there may be a handful of listeners, surprisingly, that may not know who Huey Newton was, but he was, of course, a, a co-founder of the Black Panthers and was a uh, minister of defense. But by the time he came um, to UC Santa Cruz, he was studying, um, what was he studying, History of Consciousness? that you was got the the it. program. And uh, you met him there, and you guys worked together. Did you, in fact, co-author a paper together? Uh, yes
1: on the crash of Air Florida Flight 90, and that that's how the chapter on airplane crashes and NASA opens, is with our analysis of that crash, because it was clearly a case of self-deception by the pilot. Uh, the co-pilot was reality-oriented, reality but uh, insufficiently strong in the face of the pilot.
0: This is a, a flight that took off from Washington, D.C. in 1982 and then uh, crashed in the Potomac.
1: Exactly. And by the way, let me just point out, if you don't mind, Robert, that that there's a striking fact that I didn't know back when we wrote that paper, but it's highlighted in my book. Eighty percent of all accidents occur when the pilot is flying, not the co-pilot, even though they fly 50 percent of the time. Uh, and uh, so you say to pilot, isn't he more experienced? Isn't he older? Isn't he the one that should be able to fly better? And the answer is yes. But the problem appears to be exactly the fact that the co-pilot in the face of the pilot is too nervous to contradict him when he's screwing up. But the reverse is not the case. And one piece of evidence that supports this is the most dangerous configuration, from your standpoint, the person, the the passenger, is if the pilot and the co-pilot are flying for the first time then the co-pilot is really apt to be subordinate. You understand? Let's say you're the pilot and I'm the co-pilot, but we've flown 20 times already. We've chatted about our mutual interest in Santa Cruz or this Saturday thing. So you're coming too close to a mountain, and I say, Robert, I, I don't like the looks of this. What do you think? I think we're a bit too close to the mountain. And you say, God bless you. You know what I mean? <laughs> But if it's our first fight together and you're too close to the mountain, I don't say nothing and we're dead.
0: In fact, that's what the flight recordings from this um, Air Florida flight that you analyzed with Huey Newton um, seemed to reveal. The uh, co-pilot was alarmed by some readings right. and uh, the pilot dismissed them and the co-pilot was super deferential, didn't really uh, go with his fears, and the plane almost immediately crashed. Exactly. Um there's a lot of human folly, to use the word from your the title of your book, um, that is based on following the leader, right, and and deferring to the leader, uh, and not being skeptical.
1: Well, that's a good point. Yes, I think there must be. I don't I don't remember ever developing that theme in more depth. And I I'll make one side comment if I can slip it in. Of course. Uh, one thing i like about this subject is first of all we we we're, we're not going to run out of material anytime <laughs> soon in in fact it's being generated faster out of washington dc and on the campaign trail than we can even deconstruct it you know and uh programs like the stewart show and the colbert show which i love i mean 90% of it is poking fun of the deceit and self-deception that's out there. But it also means that almost anybody can participate. You just have to pay attention and get the logic straight. So you right there asked a question that I hadn't asked myself in that form, you know, and it must be an important one. To what degree does, uh, you you know, self-deception allow leaders to get away with stuff? I do point out that shared self-deceptions, in this case, false historical narratives, are very useful for leaders to create group unity. Because mm-hmm. these are these, you know, a big country like Germany or the U.S. I mean, we're just related, closely related to a few people. Right. We only have a few friends. How the hell are you going to unify all of us to go off into a disastrous war in Iraq? Well, lie through your teeth, and, and and talk about American exceptionalism and all this kind of garbage, you know, and then you can pull it off. But you were asking it more from the from the underlings.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so yeah. any
1: given topic like that, almost any one to the left or the right of what I say, is a whole area that that's worth developing, you know.
0: Um, you're right that the Colbert Report and the Daily Show is, is really. Um focused on this sort of parade of shams of various kinds, usually in politics. And, of course, we see that politicians, in order to practice their craft, have to constantly adapt their claims in ways that are totally contradictory, often within the same sentence or within the same day or or certainly the same career. Uh, and, 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 you know, of course, that's part of the fun of watching the daily shows, to see these things exposed by videotape and so on again and again and again. My question for you is if self deception helps us deceive others better, do you think these politicians who are talking out of both sides of their mouth are aware of the fact that they 're doing so
1: jesus god almighty that's it 's so hard to tell you know, and in principle, you cannot infer the degree of self deception just you know just by looking at them. But let me give you one example of how we 're getting closer to be able to answer that question. Some people have foolishly asserted, and even foolishly asserted that I said it in my chapter on war, that the administration was self-deceived about weapons of mass destruction. They really believed it, but the evidence wasn't there. They really believed that Saddam had something to do with 9-11, but the evidence wasn't there. But... Uh, someone did a, a beautiful linguistic analysis based on the wonderful work of Jamie Pennebaker down at University of Texas, who's pioneered computer-driven linguistic analysis based on categories of words. So what they did was to take statements by major Bush administration figures, I don't even want to mention their odious names, but they were the vice president, they were the secretary of uh, offense called defense in this country, and so on. Now, they compared statements made prior to the war that either were on WMDs or bin Laden, and they got an equal number of statements these same people made on neutral topics, didn't have nothing to do with going to war. Then they did a linguistic analysis and they showed that in that the statements about WMDs and and Bin Laden showed the classic signs of conscious deception, not self-deception. So, for example, if I'm lying to you, Robert, I tend to use the word I less often, as if I'm distancing myself from the lie from the get-go. I may use we to kind of swamp myself in other people, but more often I'll switch it to it, they, things happen kind of thing. Another feature of lies is... If I'm telling you a lie, I don't use words that elaborate on what you're saying. So, although it was raining, I walked to the office. No. Uh, If you're lying, you just say, I walked to the office. It's too much intellectual work to start inventing these phrases, qualifiers, they call them. Right, right. And also, you have to remember them later. So, once again those qualifier kind of things dropped down. In three out of the four, I forget the third one, it was in the same direction. The only one that went in the opposite direction was that liars tend to use active tense more often. Again, it's easier, I think. I went to the office, you know. Simple, active lies. And if possible, get rid of the I, you know. But in any case, in this case, they used more passive constructions, and I hypothesize in the book that's because they were actively planning an active, you know, active war, and so they then chose a more passive language, but that's complete speculation on my part. So, yes, when I look at Gingrich, and I've had very little time, thank God, to follow <laughs> this this um, Primary. Uh, stuff. <laughs> but, you know, what degree does he believe his grandiosity? To what degree does he believe his nonsense? It's it's hard to tell.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the biology here. You are um, what's known these days as an evolutionary psychologist. Do you like that term?
1: Well, I, I don't mind it, but it's not me because I'm much deeper than an evolutionary psychologist. And indeed, as usual, it was a term invented by a group of people that wanted to call attention to themselves. Um, I mean, I, I spent 15 years with another man doing an extremely difficult book on genetics of all cases of internal genetic conflict within us between our genes. It comes up in Chapter Four of my book because we have internal genetic conflict between our maternal genes and our paternal genes. So, you know, I wouldn't want to be called an evolutionary psychologist. You could call me an evolutionary geneticist if you will, but I like simply the term you used at the beginning. He's an evolutionary biologist. All right,
0: I'm going to. I withdraw the use of that term. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but at one time, uh, long ago, you were called a sociobiologist. I, I imagine you didn't really love that term either.
1: Exactly. It would never appear in my book on social evolution. And again, it was a Harvard professor, in that case Ed Wilson, trying to uh, become the father of a field by being the father of the name of the field, you know. Uh-huh. That's that's an old kind of Harvard game, and I just, I didn't like it because it allowed stupid people and... Uh, I could recount but won't examples from real life to act as if, oh, this is just some recently cobbled together discipline barely wobbling up on its feet. No, it's it's a branch of evolutionary biology, which is alive and well after a 115 years before Ed does his damn book, you know. <laughs>
0: um in any case though uh, you're you 're very well known for being uh part of a you know a, a movement in evolutionary biology that has managed to bring some genetic analysis and evolutionary analysis to behaviors right. um, I'm v- the The charge against sociobiology going way back and you you had to deal with this a lot and uh, against evolutionary psychology today, of course, is that it 's just pure biological determinism that it says we 're slaves to our genes, everything we do, good and bad is essentially written in the genes, and we have no say in the matter at all. I don't get the impression from this book that you believe that, though.
1: No, I don't at all. I mean, it's it's a fatuous charge, you know. To argue from natural selection presumes that there are genes out there genetic variability out there with reference to whatever it is you say selection is acting on that's so commonplace a fact it doesn't need uh... evidence anymore it's true of every every trait we have There's genetic variation in it you know uh... there's some people born with three legs or six toes or whatever so even very highly canalized stationary traits there's variation in them never mind the brain Uh, Most people don't know, as I point out in Chapter 6 of the book, uh, call it about 65% of our genes are active in our brains. The, The brain is the most genetically active tissue in our body. The closest second is the liver with about 30 percent of all genes active in the liver uh, because it has to detoxify a a wide range of chemicals. Mm. If if you go down to the kidney or the heart or the muscles, those are 10 or 15 or 20 percent of all genes active in them, and most of those are so-called house-cleaning genes, you know, genes that keep the cell clean. So there's a huge amount of genetic variation, and the determinism business is just a canard. But the other day, as a joke talking with someone, I said, you know, now when they call me a biological determinist, I say, damn right. And what would you prefer, (laughs) that I be a cultural determinist?
0: Well, I would, I honestly, uh, reading the later portions of your book, I would never have applied the word biological determinist to you because... Let me let me read a couple of, uh, of phrases. From sure. Self-deception has been favored by natural selection, dot, dot, dot. I'm doing some ellipses sure, here. Sure, sure, sure. Advancing our own evolutionary interests. So why should we fight such tendencies in ourselves? Right. Um, does this not violate our attachment to evolutionary self-interest? And then you go on to say, I could not care less. And right. you And you quote another um, a fellow biologist saying, Uh, His genes couldn't care less about him, and he feels the same way toward them. In other words, you're saying that, and in fact, you advocate that we study our own self-deception in order to free ourselves from it. So you're saying that while genes may give us this capacity, may give us this this ability uh, or tendency, we still have something in ourselves that can say, F*** you, genes, right?
1: Yeah, and I I like (laughs) your language, too. I hope you don't bleep it out. I have to. (laughs) Well, okay. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, The fact that, you know, I have various tendencies in me that may have genetic components, but we also have, presumably selected, and therefore Gene's backing it up, a tendency to look at our different tendencies and choose which ones we wish to go along with and which ones, for what we imagine are good reasons, we wish to fight. And someone got mad the other day in some book review that I went on in the same section you're talking about and said, after all, uh, rape is adaptive under certain circumstances. Child abuse, as long as you get a a sufficient uh, return benefit. And I advocate none of those things. I encourage none of those things, you know. Huey Newton used to make a very good point, which I wish I had highlighted in the book. Uh, And that was he, he used to say, look. Bob, and, and, and we were Bob, that Bob, and Huey back then. He said, Bob, self-deception has an even lower moral status than simple deception. Simple deception, I'm just fooling you, Robert, one organism. Self-deception, I'm fooling two, including the one that you know, I have to live with. So if I'm fooling myself, that can have some negative downstream effects out of touch with reality. He called that polluting the temple. The irony is that in the real world, it often runs the other way around. So going back to what is ancient history for many of your listeners, in the Vietnam War, I was staggered and I was just learning biology then, and how many people would say, oh, he sincerely believes that napalming uh, Vietnamese children is in the best interest of Vietnam, you know? So I would say to myself, so what? You're prizing the organism's degree of self-deception? <laughs> you know, whereas if he didn't sincerely believe it, but just did it out of a Machiavellian spirit, then uh, he would be a worse person.
0: Well, what's fascinating about your argument, uh, one of the things that's fascinating is that it really hinges um, on a belief on your part that the truth is available, that the truth is known to us, even in complex matters like decisions to go to war and things like that, and that when we go astray, it really is uh, because we either willfully or involuntarily refuse, essentially, to look straight at the truth that is out there. So, So you really are a believer in truth. You're not one of these relativists. Uh, who would say, look, truth is what you make of it.
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not.
0: Um, getting back to the the whole uh, bone of contention in biological determinism, genetic determinism, how would you describe the influence of genes on some of these large-scale uh, behaviors and customs in human society? So you talk about, for instance, one could say that there's a good biological reason for males to be jealous, to be violent and to be oppressive toward women because they want to make sure that the women, women raise their offspring and not some other guy's offspring and don't fool around and all that. And that leads by and by to social customs, horrible social customs, which you're appalled by like honor killings and various other forms of repression toward women. Um, Some people, of course, would accuse you and have of saying, well, then it's that it's a fait accompli, that it's you're fatalistic about it. This is in the genes. We have to we have to act this way. You're not saying that. But I am curious to know how you think genes, uh, you know, sequences of DNA could actually be responsible for those, uh, like I say, large scale traditions and customs in society.
1: That's a very, very difficult question, Robert, and our ignorance of gene all the way through neural patterns, all the way to behavior is still pretty pretty strong. We still don't have much of an understanding of how the nervous system even operates at a detail level. Yes, we we now have pictures of ongoing neural activity, fMRI work, PET scan work, blah, blah, blah. But we're still very, very ignorant of it. So if you want to know, you know, pathways by which it could happen, I can't really give it to you. I do think that uh, paternity certainty or uncertainty problem, as I prefer to call it, right is an important, has been an important selective f- uh, factor on the male psyche. I don't like how a bunch of males solve it, and I don't like the nastiness that comes out of it, e.g., you know, a woman is threatening to leave you, that's my p- you're not. I'm not letting any other man have my p***. Well, listen to me, m- or God didn't give you one of those beautiful structures, and stop pretending he did. You know, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> Remember, the biological determinism stuff was all in the 70s, and this was a highly politically conscious kind of time in our society because the Vietnam War was still going on. There was, first of all, the year of the woman, and then uh, the outburst of uh, homosexual uh, identity and coming out of the closet and saying, hey, we want a fair place in the society. So... um, I was alleged to not only be a biological determinist, but a biological determinist in the service of fascism.
0: An apologist for the worst aspects of the status quo.
1: Yeah, I'll give you one joke. Everywhere but Harvard, they called me a racist, a sexist, and a fascist. At Harvard, they left out racist because they were afraid my tall, strong, dark-skinned Jamaican wife would come in and beat them up if she heard they'd call me that, as she would have. So it's all crap. Now, am I a fascist because I wrote a paper on reciprocal altruism that showed that natural selection favors a sense of fairness and a sense of justice? It's not some arbitrary Uh, cultural construct, it's not something that depends upon someone teaching you, the damn thing emerges naturally. Uh, No, I'm also the first person to lay out an objective sex-blind system for considering the evolution of the two sexes, because the key underlying variable is relative parental investment. How much is each party doing for the offspring? The male typically is doing nothing. I'm not talking about humans, but other species. And in humans, he doesn't have to do anything, although he often does Now, you know, that paper's been cited, I don't know, 7,000 times or something like that There's a huge industry out there uh, getting deeper and deeper understanding of the two sexes But I laid out the theory So in what way am I a sexist for laying out an objective, sex-blind system for thinking about the sexes? It's just that the cultural anthropologists, for example, and I'm in an anthropology department and they hate me like sin and make the sign of the cross, or they used to when I passed nearby to ward off any any bad vibes, you know. The cultural anthropologists don't want biology mentioned at all. Everything is non-biological, you know. It's all just what the culture is imposing on people. I think it's garbage, you know.
0: I'm getting from you the the sort of crude picture of what was called sociobiology and is now called evolutionary psychology that somehow there's a gene for everything there's a gene for honor killings of women there's a gene for <laughs> there, there's a gene for homicide there's a gene for you know every yeah. human behavior we see uh, no one ever proposed that as far as I know and that it would be almost mathematically impossible for that to be true uh, given the number of genes that we have <laughs> but th- you're saying that maybe Something in the DNA in the genes maybe sets some, some sort of initial conditions, some tendencies, some proclivities, that then, uh, through you know social processes, give rise to patterns, uh, societal patterns, institutions, again, large-scale uh, behavioral phenomena uh, and that we, in turn can choose or not choose to go along with that.
1: Well, that's extremely well put, Robert, and I'll just add one footnote to it, if I may, that you might find interesting. This is work that came out after my book, uh, but uh, self-inflation in, self is very, very common. In fact, every society in the world has been looked at. People practice self-inflation, at least along some dimensions, where you're you know, more than half the people interviewed placed themselves in the top half of the distribution, which is mathematically impossible.
0: All the children are above average.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Now, now they've done a beautiful study where they, where they measured self-inflation fairly well through uh, multiple questionnaires and so on. And then, and then they averaged across each society. And then they plotted it as a function of income inequality. There's something called the Gini, J-I-N-I coefficient. The U.N. publishes them every year, and they're a measure of income inequality across the entire society. Guess what? Societies that are low in inequality, i.e. are much more equitable in their monetary uh, rewards, Japan and, and Germany being two good examples, are low in self-inflation. Uh, Venezuela and Peru uh, are high in self-inflation. The U.S. is intermediate and probably heading up the curve, because we know we're becoming more and more unequal in distribution now you say to yourself all right dr trivers biological determinist that you are do you believe Jap- japanese and germans differ genetically from americans and and uh, Peruvians. Well, not really, because we know among Japanese that if you bring students into the lab and measure their self-inflation, and then you bring them back, you know, a week later or something, and now you put them in a competitive situation, a zero-sum economic game where anything I win, you lose, and vice versa, lo and behold, if you do the self-inflation scale afterwards, it's gone up. So we, we know that individuals will adjust or can adjust their degree of self-inflation to the degree of competition they're in. And when you think about it logically, it makes sense that at least for self-inflation that relates to financial things, uh, if, there's, if there's low variance in financial rewards, there shouldn't be much self-inflation.
0: We need to psych ourselves up, though, in ferociously competitive environments sometimes in order just to enter the fray and uh, and survive, yeah?
1: Yes, we do. And there are psyching up mechanisms that soldiers use, that athletes use. But, you know, even there, I was struck by an article, and unfortunately I can't remember the second guy, the the, the famous closer... In baseball i e you know the guy that closes out the game yeah. when you're ahead with yeah, one yeah. or two innings left is Rivera uh, of the Yankees, and he's now the all time best on these various lists. Now, the second guy is one of these pump your up guys, and he works himself up into a, you know into a lather and he tries to stare down and overpower the other guy psychologically <laughs> he, he's second best. Rivera is completely reality oriented. Nothing is show. He couldn't care less whether the person's frightened of him or not. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. He's not psyching himself up for nothing. He's just sitting there and rationally studying the matter and putting a pitch where he thinks it belongs, and then he has the gift of putting it there. So if push came to shove, I would go with reality as a bias, you know, nine times out of ten, before I would go even for short-term uh self inflation for conscious reasons, you know
0: so much of life though is full of these gray areas uh, i'm speaking from my own perspective here, yes, where we just don't know uh the the truth of the matter in, in questions of judgment uh, of evaluation um, right. you know, so right. am I worthy of this? Am I good enough? What are my right. prospects? Dare I take this risk i can't i can 't quantify the risks. And at that point, that's where storytelling enters. Okay, uh, I deserve it because I've been a good boy. Uh, (laughs) I'm special, you know. Uh, The other guy can't possibly be as good as me. Uh, And and it seems as though we often need that story uh, rather than simply uh, existing in the unknown, in uncertainty. It's very hard to know whether it's self-deception, whether it's realism, whether pure objective analysis is sufficient to, to base an action on.
1: Again, and maybe it's because of my own strong streaks of self-deception, I tend to fight it when I when I see the chance. So people will say to me, you know, oh, you deserve it. You know, let's say something <laughs> nice finally comes through for me. Oh, you deserve it. And I say, well, I don't know what I deserve, but I'm real happy to get it. <laughs> you
0: know? You come in for a lot of um, self-analysis in this book. Uh, you're yes. not just sitting back and saying what fools other mortals be. Um, a lot of stories and anecdotes in here about you, yes. um, they happen to involve sexual relationships a lot of the time. And you oh. and you showing off, for instance, there's a story of you in Jamaica Showing off for I guess an attractive younger woman uh showing yes. showing your driving prowess by nearly driving over a cliff, nearly killing all what is it three people in the car uh, no, I
1: think it was I know it was four <laughs> four okay <laughs> go ahead <laughs> but uh, I know I had to reach down that the car was tilting over this drop which would have been a couple of hundred yards. There was a tree about twenty feet below that might have caught the car, but then how the hell would we have extracted ourselves? and gotten up to 20 feet. So it's tilting, only one wheel touching the ground. I had to reach down and pull this thoroughly frightened woman out of the car, and I remember the guy that came out in the back seat had to reach in and pull out someone, too. So there was at least four of us. That's truly scary. I I believe that showing off uh, from my own limited experience is one of the more dangerous things you can do, because... At its worst, you're concentrating entirely on your audience. You ain't paying attention to the real world, right?
0: And yet our popular culture, uh, I think it sends a relentless message to us that we should be doing great things, showing off, excelling, uh, you know, in various ways. Right. Um, You know, but if it weren't for guys showing off for uh, prospective mates, there wouldn't be much human history to talk about, would there? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I like that <laughs>
0: um, I want to come back to, to Santa Cruz because you were here was it in the 1980s that you taught here late 70s 90s? yeah seven seventy-eight to
1: 94 16 years
0: it is said Robert that you hate Santa Cruz
1: mm, I developed a very strong dislike for the university um I did not like the town of Santa Cruz. It it didn't fit me and vice versa. It was one of the most racially homogenous towns I've ever been in. I come from the East Coast. You you didn't even have Mexicans in Santa Cruz at the time. Less than 1% were black. Now, Watsonville was over 50% Mexican. I can't remember Capitola, although I remember it as not being very diverse. And then people were laid back, my joke was about UCSC, they were laid back to the point of being comatose. <laughs> and if you strung together three logical sentences in a row, they would say, hey, give me a break, back off, you're invading my personal space, you know, that kind of thing. So there was a bad fit.
0: So were you, are you more of a combative intellectual then, it Just and people couldn't take it? Is that what you think? or?
1: Jesus, it wasn't even being combative. It was even just, like I say, three logical sentences in a row was too much for some of these characters, you know?
0: (laughs) Oh, golly. Um, I wanted to get back to your um, relationship to to Huey Newton just a a little bit. You you said um, uh, a while back that he had a way of recognizing self-deception and beating it out of you. I think that's what you said. Yeah. But he was victim to his own self-deception, as as we all are. Right. In your relationship with him, was it testy in that way? Did you guys point out um, blind spots in each other?
1: Yeah, but I would say it's probably more him and me because he was a stronger personality, and um, he could be scary. You know, when he was killed, I, I my joke was there. Two thousand people heaved a sigh of relief in the Bay Area. You know.
0: He was accused of, of killing a couple of people um, in his life, and there were, there were legal actions taken against him. Uh, and, and I think both cases dropped, those homicide charges or manslaughter charges. Is that right?
1: Well, in, in the case of the death of a prostitute uh, who was killed in 1974, he jumped bail and went to Cuba for three years. Uh-huh. Then he decided to come back and face the charges. He came back. He was arrested. He was bailed. He had Hollywood friends and big-time lawyers to back him up. He was then tried twice, 12 to 2 for acquittal the first time. They tried him a second time. Then it was 11 to 1 for acquittal, and they realized it was hopeless, and they didn't try him again. Now, there was a famous shootout on the streets of Oakland long before I met him, which would have been around 67, when a notorious uh, cop who had killed four black men in four different incidents late at night, none of them had a gun or a knife or nothing, it was just straight old police executions. He got shot to death in a controversial interaction between Huey and the police late at night. I think there was a second Panther in the car. I know there was a second cop that came up, that was called in as backup. Huey ended up getting shot. The second cop ended up getting shot, and both survived. Fry was killed. Uh, On that case, he was, I think he was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter, and the California Supreme Court ruled three years later that it should have been involuntary manslaughter, And then I don't know whether they retried him or whatnot, but all I know is he spent three years on death row. They put him on death row, even though he was never convicted of a a capital crime. But that's what they wanted to do to him. He he would tell me fantastic stories like, you know, one day you go into the shower and there are four uh, Nazis, neo-Nazis you know, with all their tattoos and so on. And they say, we don't like, uh, you know, they use the N-word, uh, but you're all right because you killed a cop. And Huey and he, would always deny it in any situation. And he would say, uh, well, I appreciate uh, that, but I didn't kill no cop. And they said, well, we still don't like N-people, but we don't believe you. We know you killed a cop, so you're all right, you know. So anyway,
0: wow.
1: he, he used to tell incredible incredible story so i mean he would actually a friend reminded me of the fact i used to use the term sorry i was sort of deferential and and frightened in some part of my soul around him i was generally without fear but uh so i i would say i'm sorry i'm sorry well he had taught me the 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 sorry in prison they say sorry is a sorry word no, and I can it imagine. is yeah yeah you know because if 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 I'm apologizing to you, Robert, and I say, I'm sorry, Robert. Well, hell, if you stub your toe, I could say, Jesus, Robert, I'm sorry your your toe is hurting. And that doesn't mean I'm taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. It just expresses sorrow. So you have to say, I apologize. So some friend of mine reminded me a few years back, Huey used to make me drop and do 20 (laughs) push-ups whenever I used the word sorry as a way of trying to get me to not do it, and still be physically fit, you know.
0: <laughs> well, this is... Uh, God, Robert, we could spend a whole... I'm sure we could spend a lot of time talking about your relationship with Huey Newton. And, yes. uh, it was a friendship, but it also sounds like it had master-disciple aspects to it?
1: Well, it, but in both directions, okay. you know. He was, he was brilliant, and, uh, and he coveted uh, having a brilliant friend who was his mental equal, and who was strong enough to stand up to him intellectually, and also maybe personally in a couple of cases. So I don't think it was a master disciple. He was godfather to one of my twins, and we were very, very close. Uh, I was a member of the party for three years, and then he excommunicated me one night.
0: The Black Panther Party? Yes. Huh. And he excommunicated
1: me one night, and and he said, and stay out of my territory, by which he meant Oakland.
0: Do they use and, that and religious would deliberately
1: term? Deliberately use a biological term like territory,
0: but a religious term like excommunicate.
1: Yes, exactly, wow. like the Pope. Wow. And and um, and he said it's for your own good, and I knew he was right because I had already gotten inklings that there were party members that said we're going to kill Trivers. And Huey used to act in various situations to protect people. Let's say within the party that he preferred, but which had, uh, you know, uh, pissed off someone else in the party or had done something that they were against, you know. So I was, I had his protection, but he said, stay the hell out of my territory. And then I think I also, being excommunicated, I think I also didn't get in touch with him. I can't remember. But uh, six or seven months rolls by. He calls me at 3 in the morning. I say, uh Maybe he says, am I interrupting something? I said, yes, you are. I'm with my wife uh, now. And then he called back 15 minutes later, and he said, I know you can't fuck for more than 15 minutes, so let's talk now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of guy he was. He was a character and a half.
0: Last, last question, Robert. You've been very patient. Um, this, this book of yours, one of the things that jumps out at me is that it is this mix, interestingly enough, of biology and science and on the other hand, self-observation, uh, self-revelation, it's a very personal book in many ways. Yes. It, it made me want to ask you, uh, did you undertake, you know, career in evolutionary biology and behavioral biology as a way of understanding things you'd experienced in your own life?
1: Well, that's a very, that's a very uh, insightful question, because in some ways the answer is yes. And uh, I had had a breakdown uh, when I was a junior at Harvard. Uh, I was hospitalized for three months. So I was planning to become a lawyer. That fortunately kept me out of law school. A senior year, I said, well, you know, you better take a course in psychology. You know, you've just had a mental breakdown. So I took a course in psychology, and it was obvious on inspection that this was not a science. This was three competing guesses for what was important in human development uh, with no support for any of them or very limited support for any of them, right, uh, in any case. So I said, well, this is hopeless because I had been a math major originally and knew something about physics. So I knew something about what real sciences looked like. Now, then I got a job writing and illustrating children's books, and since I didn't know anything about humans in the sense of anthropology and sociology, sociology they made me work on animals because they cared less about that material and that was a huge blessing because within six months of graduating I had learned natural selection at the individual level and then I suddenly said oh that's the foundation for all of psychology and all of the social so-called sciences you know and as a scientist I mentioned this in the 13th chapter of my book. As a scientist, you believe in it. Physics rests on math. Chemistry rests on physics. Biology rests on chemistry. So psychology and economics ought to be resting on biology. They weren't. So... Yes, to a degree. I used to joke reciprocal altruism was about friendship. Parental investment and sexual selection was uh, preparing me to get married. Parent-offspring conflict was, prepar- you know, was relevant to uh, what happens when you do get married and reproduce. Uh, so, And deceit and self-deception, which I intended to write on back then because I had the insight by 70... Oh, something like 73, I had the basic insight for how you, how you might develop a theory of self-deception. That was relevant to me, too. When the famous biologist Ernst Meyer said to me sarcastically in the 80s, when he heard I was working on that, he said, how appropriate, you know.
0: <laughs> you were a student of his.
1: Yeah, he, he, yeah, he, he was a very close personal friend, and so on. He wasn't my advisor, but yeah, I'd been a student of his. So I go back to Santa Cruz, and I mentioned to Huey, and Huey laughs, and he said, "But you would expect that that the people that write on self-deception would be precisely those that have a problem with it, you know." <laughs> and and he's absolutely right, you know, if you're. If you don't, if you practice minimal self-deception and you're mentally strong and honest, you're not even aware of it or the subtleties of it, you know what I mean? Nor are you necessarily motivated to figure the damn thing out. So, yes, you could put it the way you're putting it if you want it.
0: Well, Robert, uh, in parting, I just want to say I hope you haven't been lying to me today, okay? <laughs>
1: I can only answer to you that I hope if I have been that you haven't detected any of it. <laughs>
0: Robert Trivers, his new book is The Folly of Fools, The Logic of Deceit and Self-Deception in Human Life. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. I've been your host, Robert Polly. I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon. You can check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.
1: I'm